Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey Ben, you guys can take a seat. You doing good today? You're looking good. Well, for those of you who don't know me, whether you're here or watching online, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. And I'm excited to be here this morning as we finish up this series we've been in for the past month called Bah Humbug, Who Needs Christmas? Where we've been talking about the difference Christmas makes in our lives and in our world. And uh, came across a story a while back about Ulysses S. Grant. After his second term as president, he took his family on a long-awaited, much-needed vacation. And they traveled around the world, including to his ancestral homeland of Scotland. And while he was there, someone offered to demonstrate to Grant this new game he'd never heard of called golf. But the problem was the guy who got picked to teach Grant how to golf was a terrible golfer. So he went and he teed up the ball and took a huge swing and just whiffed, hit the dirt and sent a huge divot flying that sprayed dirt all over Grant's face and beard. But old Ulysses was a hardened military guy, so he was not phased by that. And he, he kept watching while this guy swung and missed six more times. At which point he declared, this game golf seems like great exercise, but I fail to see the purpose of the little white ball. And I think that'd be a, a pretty great description of the way I golf also. Like if you watched me, you'd be like, Mike, you walked a long way and took a whole bunch of swings with that club, but what's the point of the hole in the ground with the pin sticking out of it? Are you supposed to use that? I take golf seriously though. Uh, like this summer I was supposed to golf with some buddies in a charity tournament, so I pulled out my bag and went to the driving range to see what would happen. And I noticed that with each successive club, the handle had a little bit more hair on it until I pulled out my pitching wedge that had pretty much the entire mouse nest stuck to it. And I dumped out my bag and there's a whole family living in there and I'm glad someone was getting use out of it while I wasn't. But I was reminded of this story of Grant learning how to golf this week while I was listening to Spotify and the song Running in Circles by Matt Carney came on. He sings, I can't get no peace, you keep me running, running in circles. Can't get no relief, you keep me running, running in circles. So tired of waiting, it's driving me crazy, can't get no peace, you keep me running, running in circles. I listened to that and it hit me that life is a whole lot like golf for me sometimes. And for that poor Scottish dude in the 1870s, futile, pointless, even hopeless. Like sometimes I make progress and then I mess it all up and I end up exactly where I started in the first place. And I don't know about you guys, but if you're anything like me, faith can feel like that sometimes too. Like we should be doing better, we should be filled with more peace, we should be making a bigger difference, but we find ourselves stuck in the same old habits, failing in the same old places, living with the same old fears. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Christmas actually comes with a promise for you and me and everybody around us that something more and something better than running in circles, longing for more, is possible. If you have a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it over to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18 and look at what he has to say about the Christmas story. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. You can follow along with the words on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, please grab one from the Next Steps table before you go. They're free and we love it when they disappear. But this is what Matthew writes about Christmas. 
He says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Oh, quick time out. There are a couple things I want us to understand this morning before we dive all the way into the story. And the first one is this word, Messiah. It's actually a Hebrew word, Mashiach, that's from the Old Testament. And the Greek word in the New Testament that's translated from Mashiach is what? Does anyone know it? It's Christ. Sometimes we think that's Jesus' last name. That is not it. It wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ and their new baby Jesus H. Christ. That's not how it went down. Christ is a word that means anointed one, which means Messiah. It's, it's this Greek word that means Jesus is the one the world had been waiting on for so long, the one that God promised to Adam and Eve way back in the garden when they broke everything, when he said, I am going to send someone to set things right. Jesus is the one that the Jews had been waiting on for 2,000 years since the day God showed up and promised Abraham that one day he would bless the entire world through Abraham's family. That's what Matthew's getting at when he says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And then he continues, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Second quick timeout, where we're doing a deep dive on names. The name Jesus is an English translation of the Greek name Jesus, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And if those sound like weird names, it's because the Greeks and the Hebrews did not have the letter J. I don't know why they didn't have it. It's a fine letter. It's not as good as M, but it's a top 26 letter of all time in my book, but they didn't have it. And uh, so they used Y sounds or IE sounds instead. Anyways, like if we translate... Yeshua straight from the Hebrew to the English, and we skip the, the Greek middleman, we don't get Jesus, we get Joshua. So let me just mess with your whole paradigm of Christmas and tell you you might have been reading the baby's name wrong the whole time, and if God hasn't been answering your prayers, maybe it's because you haven't even been saying his kid's name right, okay? So you guys, whew. it's too late to change it now. We're like too far in, mostly I think because the songs wouldn't sound right. Like, Josh loves me, this I know, for the, you can't do it. It's just bad. But here's why this actually matters. It's not that Jesus isn't named Jesus. It's not it at all. It's that the name Yeshua was meant to evoke the memories and the imagery of the great Old Testament hero, Joshua, this conquering warrior who freed his people from all of the other groups that would seek to oppress them and brought peace to his land, which is exactly what the nation of Israel was looking for in the Messiah. So the angel shows up and tells Joseph, this baby's going to be born and you're to give him the name Yeshua. And then Matthew continues. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But this is a, this is a crazy story. Probably more than any of us realize because we've heard it so many times. But Mary, like if she had been found pregnant out of wedlock before the first century, she probably would have been stoned. They would have taken her to the public square and thrown rocks at her until 
she died. But by the time the Roman Empire was in charge, the Jews didn't have permission anymore to just kill people for whatever they wanted to kill people for, so they had to do different things. And not only that, but like if you're Joseph or you're Mary's parents and you find out she's pregnant and you ask her, okay, which one of these crazy neighborhood boys is the father? She's like, none of them. No, um, it's, it's the Lord. God uh, came to me in a dream and that's how it all went down. Like there's a 0% chance Joseph wasn't thinking, oh, she's crazy. The girl is bonkers. Like she's just not clinically sane and I can't be having her killed because she's mentally unstable. That's not cool. I don't want to do that. But he was kind of in a pickle because Matthew tells us specifically that Joseph was a follower of the law and he was faithful to it and the law said she had to be killed. And if she couldn't be killed, she needed to be shamed. She needed to be dragged into the public square and humiliated, but that's not something Joseph wanted to do. He just didn't feel right about it. And so it's this fascinating moment where we look at him and he's caught between law and grace and law and grace and law and grace. And he eventually kind of shoots the gap in the middle. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to embarrass her, but also I'm not going to, you know, commit the rest of my life to this chick who's currently preggers and nuts, so that's not a good idea. So he's just like, right? And he divorces her quietly. He, he severs the marriage contract. That's his idea. He's about to do that, and then an angel shows up and says, hey, wait up, ma'am. Do not be afraid to marry Mary. Because if you do, everyone's just going to assume that you're actually the father, and you're not, and your reputation's at risk here. And I know that, that gets really complicated, and you live in this little town where people are going to talk, and it's going to get weird for a little bit, but she's not actually crazy. This thing that she told you happened actually did happen. The baby inside her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. God is about to do a thing. And when this baby is born, name him Yeshua. And I want to zoom in on this moment real quick, because I think we read it backwards with the full context of hindsight, but Joseph had to live it forward, which means his experience of that angel showing up and giving him that dream is wildly different than the way we want to think about it. Because like when this angel showed up and said, hey, give him the name Yeshua, Joseph would have been like, yeah, like Joshua, like the great warrior leader of our people who set us free from oppressive regimes, just like the stinking Romans who are occupying our land and oppressing us right now. I get it. That's why that name. And the angel's like, yeah, give him the name Jesus. Give him the name Yeshua because, and Joseph could have filled in that blank. He would have been like, yeah, 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 angel, Mr. Angel, I know why. I know why. It's because we're still functionally enslaved. Because our land is not our land. Because we've been living under pagans who have pagan laws and a pagan system. Because for centuries, your people have been existing in darkness, brought about by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. Because we are meant for more than what we've been experiencing because of all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get why the Messiah is coming. And the angel says, because he will save his people. And Joseph's going, yeah, he will save us from our oppressors. God, we thought you forgot about us. It's been 400 years since anybody heard from you. We thought you just abandoned us to this space, but you didn't. Yes. Of course we're giving the name Josh. The old Josh saved us from oppressors. The new one's going to do that too. I can't wait. But that's not what the angel said. The angel said, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we got to get this. For Joseph, that would have been a, wait, What? type of a moment. He's going from their, their sins. 
dude, that's not really a felt need right now. You're an angel. I don't super want to offend you or anything. But if you went around Israel and you took a straw poll, you would not find a whole lot of people who think that the thing we need saving from most is our sin. Like, I don't know what they teach you in heaven, but you're clearly unfamiliar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We start with physiological stuff, like we need food and water, then we need shelter, and then we need love. And then if we can get there, self-esteem and ultimately self-actualization. Like, and do you know what you did not hear in there, Mr. Angel? Anywhere? Sin. Right? It's not, it's not on the list. And besides, we have a really complicated, sophisticated system in place already to deal with our sin. You probably flew by it on your way to my house tonight. It's a big old building. We call it the temple. It's hard to miss. But uh, we can pretty much take animals there day or night, whenever we need to, to get saved from our sin. Like, we, we, we got that covered. And we know how to do that. We need some saving. Rome needs some saving from their sin. They are the worst. But, like, we don't need as a savior to be worrying about sin. That's taken care of by the blood of the bulls and the goats. We need a savior who can handle a sword. And it would have been easy and natural for Joseph to think every single one of those thoughts. And I'm sure in the moments and the days that followed the stream, he did think every single one of those thoughts. Because the idea of a Messiah coming to save people from their sins was not what he was expecting or anybody else. But the thing is, in the moment, that's not what Joseph said to the angel. And here's why. This is really deep exegesis here of the Bible, you guys can thank me later, but when an angel shows up in your room and talks to you audibly, you do not talk back. That's why Joseph didn't say anything. Every time they show up, people are so like wet their pants, scared, the angel has to be like, look, I know I'm frightening, but don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. Which, as an aside, is why when people tell me, God appeared to me and he told me, like, I always think, he did, huh? And here your face is not melted off. I'm not as sure as you are, it was God. But anyways, like the angel shows up and tells Joseph really clearly what he's supposed to do. And so he wakes up and he does it. And this is what I want to lean into this morning. I want, I want to dig in here as we prepare our hearts for Christmas this week. And we walk back into lives where sometimes it feels like we are running in circles and longing for more. Here's my question. Do you know why so many of us aren't deeply moved when we hear the words of that angel that Jesus came to save his people from their sins? Do you know why we respond to the Christmas story in a way that's really similar to a whole lot of the people in the first century who heard what Jesus was all about and thought, yeah, that's great and all, but that's not really what I want saving from most. There are some situations in my life I would like for you to pluck me out of, but like saving from my sins isn't super a felt need for me right now. I think the reason 2,000 years later that even those of us who worship Jesus and who have been following him for a long time, the reason we don't find ourselves profoundly overwhelmed and almost shaken to the core when we hear that, the, the reason so many of us don't find ourselves overcome by emotion at the power of it all is that we read, give him the name Jesus because he will save us from our sin. But what we hear is given the name Jesus because he will forgive us for our sin. If we're not careful, we will reduce Christmas to forgiveness. We will shrink down the brilliant advent of the creator of the universe stepping out of eternity into the human story to be with us into nothing more 
than forgiveness. And I realize maybe for some of us, that's our entire religious experience. People make mistakes, but God forgives. People get it wrong, but God forgives. I mess up, but God forgives. Because the message of Christmas is like so much more than that. It is that, but it's not just that. And we got to understand, Jesus didn't just come to save us from the penalty of our sin or from the consequences of our sin. And honestly, like, even though we have been saved from the penalty of death and eternal separation from God through Jesus and his death and resurrection, we still have to live with the consequences of our sin a whole lot of the time. The very real ways in which our mistakes affect our lives and the lives of the people around us. And so there's something more at play. Jesus didn't just come to save us from the penalty of our sin. He came to save us from the power of our sin. He came in the footsteps of the original Joshua as a warrior here to do battle against the thing that oppressed us, that left us in chains, that kept us back from the lives God says we were created to live, from the dreams God says he has for us, from the future God says is ours to claim. See, Jesus' promise wasn't just that we'd have the chance to get to heaven when we die. His promise was that we'd have the chance to actually live while we're still alive. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. And the Greek word we translate full here is this crazy adjective, parisos, which means exceedingly abundant, overflowing, more than enough, not just abundance, but like crazy opulent abundance. You guys, that is the kind of life Jesus says you and me and every single one of us were created and dreamed up by God to live But sin cuts us off from it. Sin steals that kind of life from us. It kills it inside of us. And it destroys our opportunity to grab hold of it in the future. Like sin is more powerful and poisonous than sometimes we give it credit for. The Bible continually talks about it being so oppressive that we're enslaved to it and held captive by it. The Bible almost personifies sin. Like it's not a thing that we did, but it is a force in this universe that weighs heavy on the human soul. I think sometimes it just gets so familiar to us. We're so used to living smack dab in the middle of our sin that we don't realize its potency. When I was in college one winter, a buddy and I had to drive up to northern Iowa to get a pig. Um, for a fraternity activity. We'll put it that way. And uh, turns out in the state of Iowa, you can't buy a dead pig with its head still attached because of mad pig disease or something bad could happen if you cook it with a head on it. But we knew a girl whose dad was a pig farmer who said he would give us a pig with its head still on as long as we promised not to eat it and we were not eating it. So we drove up to get this thing and he wanted to show us all of his living pigs first. And we walked out to these barns, these long white barns that had 1,500 pigs each in them. And the farmer went in first. My friend Zach followed after him and he just ran down the line petting these pigs. I made it eight steps into that barn before I choked on the air. And I looked up and saw Zach sprinting back toward me. We both ran out of the building and puked into the snow. Like I was on my hands and knees in eight inches of snow, vomiting all over the place. I actually have a picture of it for you guys. Check it out. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But this farmer walked out and he just cackled at the two city boys who could not handle the pig barn. And I was kind of embarrassed until we got like halfway home and I realized, time out. It's not that that air is healthy for him to breathe. Uh Uh-uh. 
there's all sorts of bacteria in there that cannot be good for human lungs. It's just that he's so used to the smell, he doesn't realize how powerful it is anymore. Sin is like that, you guys. It kills us. It's oppressive. It's destructive. It's crippling, and it's overwhelming. Even if we're so used to it, we don't even realize its potency anymore. I think back to the, to the very first Christmas night, to the Savior who came to liberate us from the power of that sin. And I can't help but take note that he was surrounded by something pretty similar to the barn that I experienced. By animals and hay, he was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable, laid in a manger, not far from what was known in the ancient world as the dung pile. They didn't have fancy machinery to flash freeze animal poo and turn it into fertilizer, so they swept it into the corner. And then when the pile got too big, they would wheel it out to the communal dung pile where all the manure was held. And in a barn, they would sweep it close to the feed trough, to the manger. And it's shocking that the creator of the universe would choose to be born into a situation like that. Because the dirtiest thing in the barn that night wasn't the animals or the hay. The dirtiest thing in the barn that night wasn't the dunghill or the placenta. The dirtiest thing in the barn that night wasn't even the dirt. The dirtiest thing in the barn that night was the sin. Like the weight of all human anger and violence and hatred laid heavy in the air that first Christmas. The stench of our rebellion, the brokenness of our selfishness didn't just cover that stable or the town of Bethlehem in the hills nearby where the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. It covered every square inch of this planet, and that is why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came, because we were so far gone, so cut off from the lives and the relationship with God and one another that we were created for that we were hopeless without him. Like, sin is powerful. We cannot mistake that. And it left all of us hopelessly dirty and offensive, having sacrificed our worth in order to chase our world. But Jesus refused to leave us in that space. He came to restore what was broken and set us free from the chains that held us back so that we could live fully and live abundantly and live with peace and live with purpose and live with hope. And that promise that Jesus made us in John 10.10 sounds bigger than forgiveness, doesn't it? And don't hear me minimizing forgiveness, not even a little bit, not at all. Forgiveness is huge. Without it, we are sunk. We have a debt that we can never, ever repay. We're done. And yet through Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, that debt is paid. It's set right. Forgiveness brings us back to zero. But that's it, which means it is a critically important part, but only part of the story. And too many of us, I think, and I'm right there in that boat with you guys, we find ourselves in this rhythm of sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness. We feel like we are running, running, running in circles and we're, we're forgiven and then we're in debt again because we sin and we're forgiven and then we're in debt again and then we're forgiven and then we're in debt again. And we can't get out of this, this cycle and we know that because of what Jesus did for us, our sins are washed clean. We know that he'll forgive us and yet we cannot escape the brokenness of the system that we live in and we cannot escape the brokenness of our own hearts and our own evil desires and we can't 
be set free from this habit that we're in of continually settling for less than what God says we were made for and less than the lives we dream of. We're frustrated with faith because we feel like Sisyphus. In Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the founder and king of Corinth, and after he had used his cleverness to cheat death twice, the gods cursed him to an eternity of pushing a giant boulder up a hill that would continually fall down right before it reached the summit, every time. And Sisyphus had to head back down and push it up again and again and again and again and again. And I want you to know if your faith feels like that, that you're striving for God and then walking back down to strive again and again and again and again. If forgiveness just sets you free to push the boulder up the hill again, that is not it. That is not the picture at all of what Jesus came to do for us. Jesus came to do more than forgive us for our sin. He came to set us free from our sin. In Romans 6, Paul talks about how all of us have been enslaved to sin, we've been controlled by it, we've been mastered by it, but because of Jesus we've been set free, and he says, your sin shall no longer be your master. That no matter how much power it's had over you in the past, because of what Jesus did, you don't have to do what it says ever again. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you guys, we're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. Our salvation actually has a direction We're saved from sin and death to life and purpose and meaning, from hopelessness to hope, from darkness to light, from slavery to brokenness, to the opportunity to walk out the doors of our houses and write a better story for all the people we crash into, to find meaning and community in a place where we're loved and even though we're known, where we get more out than we put in. We're saved from this this hopeless cycle of death and achievement and trying and striving and failing to a life where we have been liberated to live into every bit of who God says we were created to be. We're saved in the direction of that. And sin tries to tell us, and will still try to tell you that that's not possible. That you can't have the meaning God dreamed you up, knit you together, and placed you on this planet to live with. That you'll never achieve that abundance that you will continually fail and fail and fail because sin is destructive. It kills things. I think all of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you know, wherever you're at, in here this morning or online, in your walk with God, even if you're not sure, all of us know that sin kills things. Even forgiven sin kills things. It has consequences that cannot be undone. There are plenty of people living in prison who have been forgiven, washed clean, completely made new by the blood of Jesus Christ, but they're going to be in prison for a long time because their sin killed things. It's powerful. It's just overwhelming. It's like the stench of a barn filled with 1,500 pigs in the winter. But you guys, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped into a barn so that it would lose all the power it ever had over us. That's why the angel told Joseph to give him the name Yeshua, because just like the Joshua of the Old Testament, we read about in Exodus and the book of Joshua, he was a warrior come to do battle against the thing that would oppress God's people. And not the Roman Empire, which is the thing they thought was oppressing them, but something far darker, bigger, scarier, and more nefarious, sin. He came to die and rise again so we could be forgiven for our sin in order that we might escape the consequence of death, but also so that we'd be freed from our sin in order that we might truly live. 
And if you're here this morning and like your life and faith have felt like that poor Scottish dude who had to teach Ulysses S. Grant how to golf, like you're just swinging and missing again and again and again. If, if it's felt futile and, and pointless, if you feel like you're spinning your wheels and you're running in circles and you're pushing the boulder up the hill and you keep ending up back in that same place, my hope is that you'll walk out of here filled up with a new sense of who God says you are today. My hope is that you'll walk up or you walk out today overflowing because you know that you know that you know that in Jesus you are set free from the burden of sin and death so that you can truly live, that you can find hope and meaning and purpose and life and beauty even in the middle of this shattered space we inhabit. And you can be a part of what God is doing to set all things right and make all things new. And that's worth living for even in the middle of a broken world. It's worth celebrating. This morning, we're going to celebrate it. The band's going to come back up and play, and as they do, we're going to celebrate communion together. And communion is this thing that actually kind of ties back to what we were talking about in the dream of Joseph, this sacrificial system, this whole nation that believed they were, they were covered, they were good, because the blood of, of the goats and the bulls pretty much took care of their sin problem. And Jesus showed up, and at the Last Supper with his disciples, he said, take this bread and pass it around. This bread is my body broken for you, and take this cup. This cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the new covenant. That's what Jesus called it. He said there, there was this old covenant, but that blood of bulls and goats, it never actually took away the sin. There was life in the blood and there's death in your sin, so it covered over it for a little bit, but it didn't do anything about it. It didn't liberate you. It didn't break the chains of your oppression. It didn't set you free to be all that God created you to be, but my death will. This blood shed once for all, for all the sins of the past, the present, and the future is enough to cover over all of that sin. That's what the new covenant means. And so as a family of believers, we celebrate this together. We celebrate that Jesus' blood means not just that we are forgiven, but that we are set free. And so I want to invite you as the band plays to make your way back and take communion together and celebrate Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for our freedom, for our reconciliation to God and to the lives that we were created for. I'm going to pray and then we can do that. There's gluten-free wafers on that table over there. Lord, thank you. Thank you for not abandoning us to brokenness. Thank you for not letting the power of sin crush your people. Thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you for the new covenant and your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we owed a debt we couldn't pay. We're dirtier than we could possibly believe. And your blood covers that. Your blood washes us whiter than snow, Lord. We celebrate today the gift of your life. Celebrate today that you were willing to step into the human story and give everything. Have your body broken and your bloodshed so we could be forgiven and set free. Thank you for that, Jesus. Let it fill us up with hope that not only profoundly impacts our lives, but overflows out of us to light up the darkness in which we're living. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.